Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father John Flatter on the topic, God and Science. This August 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father John Flatter is a priest of the Opus Dei Prelature and was then the director of the Catholic Adult Education Centre. Thank you, Arnett. This topic has always fascinated me, on the one hand because I was a scientist in an earlier incarnation, studying four years of chemistry and other subjects in university, and then over the years keeping an interest in it, and then last year I read the book by Professor John Lennox of Oxford, mathematician, God's Undertaker. Has science buried God? And it was an absolute revelation to see the up-to-date treatment of the various scientists and what they're saying, both against God and for God, philosophers as well. And Lennox himself is a believer, so he's in a sense on our side. But he presents very cogently and in a very balanced way the arguments on both sides. So that book was a real revelation to me. Since then I've come across another book which I just started to read this week by Robert Spitzer S.J. New Proofs for the Existence of God. And the subtitle, if I remember correctly, is From Philosophy and Contemporary Physics or something to that effect. He's a Jesuit and the book is at a very high level. I just glanced through it. There's many formulas and areas of physics that I'm really not acquainted with and are going to leave me um, drowning. But some of it I will be able to understand. That book is probably not the one to recommend to the average person. The one by Professor Lennox, I would say, is readily intelligible by most intelligent people, God's undertaker. So the question is, God and science, and does science do away with the need for God? After all, science has made prodigious discoveries over the centuries, particularly in the last, and maybe we can explain everything now. We can explain the Big Bang and where the universe came from, and evolution, so they say, seems to explain where life came from and how it evolved into these intelligent, spiritual, corporeal beings that we are sitting here discussing this topic, proclaiming that there is a God behind it all, and many of them would say, you're deluded, the God delusion, we really don't need God to explain this at all. And I will give you two statements from Stephen Hawking, not to be confused with Richard Dawkins. Stephen Hawking is the man in the wheelchair from Cambridge, brilliant mind, who in his seminal book, I suppose you'd call it A Brief History of Time, which everyone claims to have read and probably nobody claims to have understood. I didn't even read it, so I'm not claiming anything. But he did refer to God at the end of that book. But he came out with a new book last year in which he now 
um, asserts that the whole universe started without God at all. And I'll give you a statement and you can make of it whatever you like. I make something of that statement. Um, it's coming from an intelligent person. I, I can't imagine him coming up with that. But anyway, we'll come to that in a moment. So the question is, does science bury God? And we don't need God anymore. Or is there perhaps a relationship between eminent scientists who believe in God, who see that there has to be a God behind this order in creation that they study? For indeed, there can be no science Science is the study of nature and its various properties, be it physical, chemical, uh, etc., biological. And there can be no science if there's not order in nature. And where does that order come from? Well, these are the, the, the questions, more or less. And the final big question that we have to be very clear on, there are only two possible explanations for this universe as we know it. One is intelligent design and intelligent creation to begin with. And in that creation there is intelligent design. There is, intel there is design. There is order. We'll come to that. But there, there is order. So either it came from God, the creator of everything, or it came from chance. There are no other Alternatives. It's one or the other. God, it is intelligent creation and designer, or it just happened. Now, at the end of this, maybe you'll have some clear understanding of the issues, and maybe you will come to a more firm belief in one or the other. And um, you'll see that I'm biased, as I ought to be, standing up here with a Roman collar. So, let us go into this matter. To begin with, God and belief in God and science are not opposed to one another. You can be a scientist and believe in God. And in fact, it has been belief in God which has led to the great scientific advances of the last centuries. Why so? Sir Alfred North Whitehead, who died in 1947, British philosopher and mathematician, posed the question of how scientific knowledge could have expanded so quickly in the years leading up to Sir Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica in 1700. So these are the centuries before 1700. How did science advance so quickly? And he answered, modern science must come from the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. God is logos, God is reason, and they expected, because they believed in God, to find laws, rationality in the universe. And of course, it is there. Science simply studies it. C.S. Lewis says the same thing. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. Francis Bacon, who died in 1626 and is regarded by many as the father of modern science, 
taught that God has provided us with two books the book of nature which is what scientists study and the book of the Bible and he considered that a truly educated person should study both mathematician and astronomer Johannes Kepler died in 1630 shared the same conviction as did many of the great scientists since the Renaissance among them Pascal Boyle, Newton Faraday, Mendel Pasteur and Kelvin all of these great scientists were believers practically every was, everyone was back then Kepler wrote the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics so it was belief in a rational God which led these scientists to look for the rationality the laws the order in nature and they found it because they were looking for it believing first of all in God and that belief in God then provided the foundation for the prodigious scientific advances in the last centuries but just as belief in God aided science so the study of science the studies of nature led back to belief in God who is the cause of the order that scientists study this indeed was one of the five arguments for the existence of God proposed by St. Thomas Aquinas who died in 1274 in his Summa Theologiae explained simply the argument states that where we find order or purpose we know that there is an intelligent cause of that order or purpose and we do find order and purpose in nature and therefore there must be a supremely intelligent and all-powerful being who is the cause of that order and this being we call God that's a very simplified form of St. Thomas's argument from order and purpose in nature but to use an example and this is used by Archbishop Michael Sheehan who wrote the famous Apologetics in Catholic Doctrine recently revised in its second edition the revised edition by Father Peter Joseph and Michael Sheehan of course was he was an auxiliary bishop of Sydney he uses the analogy of a camera if someone shows you a camera all the more these days the digital camera and claims that he just found it remember that big windstorm a few weeks ago that blew and brought down trees and power lines and the SES was called out to numerous places well he says that night I, there was a huge commotion in my backyard and everything was rattling around and I hoped the house wouldn't fall down and believe it or not the following morning I went out and I found this camera and I'm sure it just happened to be put together by that wind blowing the plastic and the glass and the aluminium around it look it takes photographs and you would say um, have you been to see a doctor lately look there is a very good um, 
specialists that we could take you to in, um, in Sydney, some very fine institutions, and you just come along quietly, and um, you'll be very kind, don't worry, and um, I think you can get some help. Now that's what we would say, because we don't really believe that a wind blowing through his backyard is going to produce a camera. These things don't happen by chance. Someone designed that camera. Well, this is the argument of Sheehan, and he says, the camera has various parts that all work together to produce a photograph. No one would say that the camera put itself together by chance. You would have to be crazy to say that. Yet, he goes on, the human eye is far more complex than a camera, but far more complex. It too must have been put together by an intelligent designer. And this is what we call God. From the camera which had a designer to the eye which is far more complex to the cause of the eye which is God. Sir Isaac Newton reflects the same thinking in his optics written in 1721. How are the bodies of animals to be contrived with so much art? And for what ends were their natural parts? Was the eye contrived without skill in optics? And the ear without knowledge of sounds? Does it not appear from phenomena that there is a being incorporeal, living, intelligent? And the sentence goes on. There must be a cause of the eye and the ear. Chance doesn't give rise to something so sophisticated. Contemporary philosopher Richard Swinburne agrees. The very success of science, he says, in showing us how deeply ordered the natural world is, provides strong grounds for believing that there is an even deeper cause for that order. And Professor Lennox, whose book I used as the basis for this talk, and by the way, for the Inform article called God and Science, which we put out from Adult Ed late last year, sums this whole question up. The point to grasp here is that because God is not an alternative to science as an explanation, he is not to be understood merely as a god of the gaps. It's a phrase that was used a long time ago to refer to when, when science can't explain something, then we say, oh, well, God would be the answer. We fill in the gaps with God. So we're just using God to fill in the gaps. And Lennox says, because God is not an alternative to science as an explanation, he is not to be understood merely as a god of the gaps. On the contrary, he is the ground of all explanation. It is his existence which gives rise to the very possibility of explanation, scientific or otherwise. So just summarizing that, there is order in nature. We see it all around us. And it is that order that scientists study. And the more they study, the more order they see, the more complexity the more miracles, if you like, in the very nature that they're studying. 
And it leads back to the cause of that order, who is God. So, coming back to the question we posed at the beginning, has the universe, with its billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars and other bodies, come about to chance, or is it the product of an extremely intelligent and all-powerful designer? These are the alternatives. Those who argue for chance, and there are some, like biologist George Gaylord Simpson, who says, the product, we are the product of a mindless and purposeless natural process which did not have us in mind. So he would follow the evolutionary theory begun especially by Darwin, that it just works and it produces life. We'll come more to this question later. So the first thing we see about the universe is that it is intelligible. Scientists can study it. They can come up with laws. It has order. Laws that are universally valid. Scientists do experiments in Sydney. They publish them in journals. Someone in Moscow, someone in Buenos Aires, someone in Abidjan can do the same experiment, come up with the same results because it's reproducible. There is order everywhere. These laws are universally valid. And if the universe were the product of pure chance, there would be no order, there would be no laws, there would just be chaos. And Albert Einstein, arguably one of the greatest minds or the greatest mind of the 20th century, at least in the area of science, made the famous statement, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. He went on to say that he considered this comprehensibility a miracle or an eternal mystery, since in principle one would expect a chaotic world which could not be grasped by the mind. What is more, he said, this miracle is being constantly reinforced as our knowledge expands. The comprehensibility of the universe is a miracle. He went on to say, my religion, Albert Einstein, consists in a humble admiration of the superior unlimited spirit, intellect, which is revealed in the minimal details which we are able to perceive with our fragile and weak minds. This conviction deeply emotional conviction in him deeply emotional of the presence of a rational superior power which is revealed in the incomprehensible universe forms my idea of God and he calls it the incomprehensible universe it should be incomprehensible but it's not to give you an example of what chance produces the chaos we consider the atoms and molecules in the atmosphere in this room. And if we ask, well, where are they? Are they all lying on the floor? Are they all lying against the walls? Are they stacked up in rows? Or are they rather bouncing about in the most random way possible? And that's the second law of thermodynamics. Systems will tend to the maximum of disorder and without some positive input. Now the example that all of you parents appreciate 
about the second law of thermodynamics is your children's bedrooms. Without some positive input from your children, everything is in the maximum of disorder. It's a mess. It's chaos. So, in the universe, if all were the product of chance, then like the molecules of air and water vapor and everything else in this room, we would have just chaos. There's no law in this chaos of the molecules. There isn't. You can't make laws about it. It's just the law of chaos, if you like. But Einstein finds, and all scientists find, in every area of, of nature, laws, comprehensibility. That is a miracle. And it leads Einstein to that humble admiration of the superior intellect that brought about the order that really shouldn't be there. Amongst the other 20th century scientists who saw a connection between the laws of nature and the mind of God, now those of you who know 20th century physics will be impressed by the litany of names of Max Planck, Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrödinger, and Paul Dirac, to name a few. Now these are the great physicists of the 20th century. The fact that the universe can be understood by the human mind has led thinkers down the ages to conclude that the universe itself must be the product of intelligence. Philosopher Keith Ward puts it like this, to the majority of those who have reflected deeply and written about the origin and nature of the universe, it has seemed that it points beyond itself to a source which is non-physical and of great intelligence and power. Almost all of the great classical philosophers, certainly Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Kant, Hegel, Locke, Berkeley, saw the origin of the universe as lying in a transcendent reality, some being outside of the visible universe. Now we come to Stephen Hawking, this um, great mind who wrote The Brief History of Time, and who suffers from motor neuron disease, which would have killed most people within about two years, and he's still there. Maybe that's a miracle too. But he's, he's not known for his belief in God, but he once admitted in a television interview, it is difficult to discuss the beginning of the universe without mentioning the concept of God. Now that's statement one in, in that book. My work on the origin of the universe is on the borderline between science and religion, but I try to stay on the scientific side of the border. It is quite possible that God acts in ways that cannot be described by scientific laws. But at least there's some acknowledgement of the possibility of God. This was a, a television interview, not the book itself. But his latest book, The Grand Design, which came out last year, in that he argues that God was not needed to create the universe. In a, a passage excerpted in the Times of London, Hawking wrote, now I'll just read this slowly and then I'll read it again and you can make of it what you will. He says, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. 
It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Now, in case you think no intelligent person would ever have said that, then I'm going to read it again. Because there is a law, such as gravity, we should ask him, excuse me, Mr. Hawking, Professor Hawking, where did the law come from? But anyway, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now that leaves the mind absolutely dazzled. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. Now I'll come to a, a comment on that type of reasoning in just a moment. And this, we come now to another aspect of the universe which has come to be called the anthropic principle, which was developed by many philosophers and scientists around the University of Cambridge. And what this principle says, based of course on the word for man, anthropos, the anthropic principle, says that the universe seems to be fine-tuned to support life, human life in particular. And the universe, of course, centers on the planet Earth. As far as we know, there's no life anywhere else. There may be, but we know there's life here and we're now discussing it. And how is it possible that in this vast universe, which is freezing cold and dark and being bombarded by various particles and whatnot, that there is a planet in which everything comes together to allow life, the anthropic principle. Now just a few aspects of this, I've just taken some of these from Lennox's book and there's a lot more you can read at, at great length about the anthropic principle. But for life to exist, for example, there must be an abundant supply of carbon which is formed under very precise conditions. If the nuclear ground state energy levels necessary for the formation of carbon varied by more than 1%, the universe could not sustain life. This led prominent mathematician and astronomer Sir Frederick Hoyle, great atheist, we'll come back to him several times more, to confess that nothing had shaken his atheism as much as this discovery and that it looked as if, quote, a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and that, quote, there are no blind forces in nature worth talking about. That's an atheist saying that. The thing is, it's too finely tuned. There must be some super-intellect. Looking at more obvious facts for us laymen in this area, the distance of the Earth from the Sun is just right to support life. Any nearer to the sun it would be too hot, any farther away everything would freeze. A change of some 2% in that distance would mean the end of all life. Likewise, surface gravity and temperature have to be within a few percent of what they are for the life-sustaining atmosphere to have the right mix of gases necessary for life. And the planet must rotate at just the right speed too slow and the temperature differences between day and night would be extreme and too fast and wind speeds would be catastrophic. This is all from Lennox's book. But when you look into this at a more 
refined scientific level and you require a great understanding of certain principles of science, you see that it's not just one or two percent. In some cases, it's just infinitesimal parts of one percent that if it varied, there could be no life. In their efforts to explain away the cause of this fine-tuning, some scientists have proposed the multiverse theory, according to which there are many, possibly infinitely many, parallel universes, so that it is only natural to expect that in one of them, everything would come together to support life. But rather than science, that's just a theory. Maybe there's other universes. Maybe there's an infinite number of universes. Then they can always come back to probabilities. In an infinite number of universes, each with billions of galaxies, billions of stars, then the chance that in one planet there could be life increases. But that is just pure fantasy. There is simply no evidence for other universes. Philosopher Richard Swinburne, whom we quoted before, sums it up with a touch of humor. To postulate a trillion trillion other universes rather than one God in order to explain the orderliness of our universe seems the height of irrationality. <laughs> a trillion trillion universes instead of one God. Now, here I want to make a statement about my own way of looking at this and my own response to it. And it seems to me, maybe you will agree, that to believe that the fine-tuned, ordered universe in which we live resulted from mere chance requires more faith than I have. I just can't believe that. It's too orderly. It's too sophisticated. Too complex for it to happen by chance. And I don't have that amount of faith. To believe in God is easy. To believe in chance with trillions and trillions of universes at all producing it by chance requires more faith than I have. And what is more, that is blind faith. There is no evidence for it. There is evidence for God in the order that we find in the universe. So, maybe those people are more credulous than we are. They accuse us of being credulous or believing in God and that's the answer. Well, frankly, when you look at the realities, to believe in God makes much more sense than to believe in chance as the cause of this. And Sir Frederick Hoyle, a great atheist, died a few years ago. He could not believe in chance. He said there must be a super intellect. There are no blind forces in nature worth talking about. Perhaps the most well-known statement on design in nature, and yes, this is 18th century, but let us mention it anyway, comes from the naturalist and theologian William Paley. He says that if asked why a stone came to be lying on the ground, one might answer that perhaps it had lain there forever. And that would be a plausible answer. But if he found a watch on the ground, such an answer would be absurd. Oh, the watch has just always been there. You would again trot him off to the mental hospital. He says, the watch must have had a maker. There must have existed an artificer, a maker, who formed it for the purpose which we find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. 
We all accept that. A watch had a designer and a maker. And he goes on, every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design which existed in the watch exists in the works of nature with the difference on the side of nature of being greater or more and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. A tree is something extraordinary compared with a rock or a star. Nature in, in its living forms is vastly more complex in order than rocks and other inanimate um, aspects of nature. In other words, if the complexity of a watch with all its parts working together according to a wonderful design implies the existence of an intelligent watchmaker, does not the far more complex world of nature, especially of living things, imply the existence of an intelligent designer? Now, some scientists would argue forcefully that the answer is no, it doesn't. Even Charles Darwin had great admiration for Paley's argument until he discovered the law, in inverted commas, of natural selection, which for him explained the evolution and design of living things. And fair enough, we'll come to the evolution immediately. Perhaps it was Darwin more than anyone else who put the nail in God's coffin, in some people's minds anyway, by arguing that with natural selection there is no longer a need to believe in God. For him and many other scientists, we no longer need God as the designer of nature. Unguided, mindless, evolutionary processes can do it all. Can they? Let's have a look at the question of evolution and God. First of all, are God and evolution mutually incompatible? So that if you believe in evolution, you don't need God, or you can't believe in God. Or if you believe in God, you can't be an evolutionist. Richard Dawkins, our great modern-day atheist and writer of God Delusions and many other books, thinks that they are mutually incompatible. He writes, using his famous description of the blind watchmaker, the only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence, existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. To use more extraordinary statements from these quite intelligent people. Natural selection, I'll just read that again. Natural selection, Darwin's understanding of how little changes occur over time in living things, producing more adaptable um, variants of species. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence remember that word, existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. If it can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is that of the blind watchmaker. So evolution is a blind process which does produce some variations. But there are problems with this. Firstly, natural selection presupposes the existence of the universe and of life. Where did the universe come from? And how did life begin? 
we're going to look at that, which is a fascinating question, in just a moment. Secondly, while the process of natural selection is itself blind and purposeless, it follows the laws of nature written into living things, the laws of genetics that God put there. And so, if there is, that there are laws that natural selection follows, then that already presupposes a lawgiver. Law, laws, fixed patterns of behaviors we've seen, don't result from chance. Chance produces chaos, not order or laws. Now, at this point, it is very helpful to distinguish what we mean by evolution or natural selection. And there are various questions, but let us look at one basic division in this whole area. If we mean that over time there will emerge variations in the individuals of a given species and that some of these variants will be better adapted for survival and will therefore tend to predominate in the population what could be called microevolution then we all agree over time individuals arise which are better adapted to the environment they survive others die out they reproduce the whole strain becomes better adapted one example of that which I was just giving recently in fact might have been today to someone um, is this and you ask the question why is it that Australians are such good swimmers because we are very good swimmers and the answer is sharks there's a lot of sharks well, there's a lot of sharks We're reading practically on a weekly basis of people either being bitten or, or killed or sharks appearing in the beaches all the slow swimmers have been taken by sharks so the only ones that survived were the fast ones and they, they interbreeded and we have a whole race of fast swimmers this is a variation on normal human nature and it's caused by influences such as sharks and perhaps stingrays and big tides and, um, and um, surfs that has taken away the, the slow swimmers leaving only the, the fit. So that's an example of microevolution. If, however, when we say, oh, I believe in evolution, we mean that one form of life will over time gradually evolve into higher and very different forms of life, what we would call macroevolution, then this is no longer the realm of science, proven fact, but rather theory, the theory of evolution, we call it. Sir Frederick Hoyle, again, our atheist mathematician astronomer, comments, well, as common sense would suggest, the Darwinian theory is correct in the small, but not in the large. Rabbits come from other slightly different rabbits, not from either primeval soup or potatoes. <laughs> Sir Frederick Hoyle. Where they come from in the first place is a problem yet to be solved, like much else of a cosmic scale. So even this atheist, Sir Frederick Hoyle, has a little bit of a, a joke about where rabbits come from, other slightly different rabbits, not from soup or potatoes. <laughs> Very importantly, the fossil record does not show evidence of the gradual transition from one form of life to another. Within species, yes, 
no question about that. But from one form of life to a very different one, the fossils are not there. And Darwin himself admitted that the lack of fossils of intermediate varieties, transitional forms, perhaps, he says, is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. What he wrote in the 19th century, and one might ask, what is the present state of fossil evidence? One of the great um, minds in this whole question of evolution is the evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, who comments on the lack of fossil evidence. Quote, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology, the secret that they don't want to divulge to the rest of us. They're not finding the fossil, the fossils of transitional forms. And he goes on to say that the fossil record shows rather two features which are particularly inconsistent with the idea that species gradually evolve. One is stasis, using the Greek term, the fact that most species show no directional change during their time on Earth. They just appear and stay more or less the same. Here's his quote, Stephen Jay Gould. They appear in the fossil record looking pretty much the same as when they disappear. Morphological change in the body, in the structure of the, of the living thing, is usually limited and directionless. So stasis, the, the fossils don't seem to change much at all in the whole period of time over which we can observe that. The other is sudden appearance. And he says, in any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. So you suddenly find in that layer of the geological mass this new species but perfectly formed not having arisen from other species even if scientists should one day be able to show conclusively that evolution does take place from one form of life to another radically different one like from fish to to amphibians or reptiles or birds even if they can show that one day, they may. It does not do away with the need for God. It will simply mean that God created life in the first place and that he wrote into its genetic code the plan for its eventual evolution into other forms. God can do that. The mind of God is totally beyond human capacity to even imagine. God could do that. Now, it's still a theory. Personally, I'm not one of the ones that subscribes to it very readily at all. I prefer to think that my, my first parents, Adam and Eve, were, were humans, quite a bit like us, and not like the chimpanzees and the orangutans and the gorillas that we can find in the Taronga Park Zoo, which do have some characteristics that are like us in their emotional side, the way they treat their babies, the way they play, have lots of fun, and even seem to form family units which last. But that Adam and Eve were like that with a human soul, personally I find repugnant. But anyway, if scientists can show that this is in fact what happened, I will accept it. I was a scientist. Well, I still remain, I guess, with a scientific mind that, that answers, that asks questions 
and that once some scientist gives me some evidence, I'm very happy to accept it. So, God and evolution are compatible. Francis Collins, director of the Human Genome Project, likes to refer to this as biologos. Bios, the realm of the living, through logos, word, mind, or intelligence. Now we come to another fascinating question. How did life begin? If we go back to the Big Bang, which they're now telling us took place about 13.7 billion years ago, when all was one molten, extremely dense mass, and it flew apart, and that's the way God could have created this universe. Now that's continually expanding at an increasing rate, mind you, with its billions of galaxies and billions of stars, and it's just staggering. But at one stage, that was all one molten mass. It was too hot to support life, of course. Then, billions of years later, and I think they're looking at around maybe three billion years ago, which is ten billion years after the universe was created, life arose. How did it arise? The living thing, the most simple living thing, is an exceedingly complex system of amino acids, proteins, atoms of all sorts. And life suddenly began. Microbiologist Michael Denton, who was teaching at the UN, the University of New South Wales, when he wrote his book, Evolution, a Theory and Crisis, and who in the beginning of the book says he's not a believer, he's just a scientist, but notice the title, Evolution, a Theory in Crisis, says that the break between the non-living and the living world, quote, represents the most dramatic and fundamental of all the discontinuities in nature between a living cell and the most highly ordered non-biological systems such as a crystal or a snowflake there is a chasm as vast and absolute as it is possible to conceive the difference between the simplest living cell and a non-living system is a chasm as vast and absolute as it is possible to conceive he describes the complexity of even the tiniest of bacterial cells weighing less than a trillionth of a gram as, quote, a veritable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up altogether of 100,000 million atoms far more complicated than any machine built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. That's all his quote. It's a brilliant short description of a tiny bacterial cell. Thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery. What is more, the factory can reproduce its entire structure in a matter of hours. You're looking at something absolutely fantastic. He goes on to ask whether such a factory could have possibly resulted from chance. He says, Is it really credible that random processes could have constructed a reality, the smallest element of which, a functional protein or gene, is complex beyond our own creative capacities, a reality which is the very antithesis of chance, 
which excels in every sense anything produced by the intelligence of man, is it really credible that that could have come out, come about by chance? My biologist Michael Bay, that's B-E-H-E, adds, to a person who does not feel obliged to restrict his search to unintelligent causes, the straightforward conclusion is that many biochemical systems were designed. I don't know why he says many. Biochemical systems have ordered their purpose, they were designed. They were designed not by the laws of nature, but by chance, sorry, not by chance and necessity, rather they were planned. Life on earth, at its most fundamental level, in its most critical components, is the product of intelligent activity. So he's a great biologist. Now let's go back to Hoyle, because he, together with Chandra Wickramasinghe, Sri Lankan name of course, who is a mathematician at the University of Cardiff in Wales, in the early 80s, were pondering the question, how did life begin? And being atheists, they started from the premise that it must have been chance. So then they start to calculate, well, what is the mathematical probability of the simplest living cell, perhaps a bacteria, putting itself together by chance in the prehistoric soup. And they knew it had to be composed of hundreds of thousands of proteins, each in turn composed of long chains of amino acids in exactly the right configuration to give rise to life. Now you've got, as you say, hundreds of thousands of proteins, each in turn composed of long chains of amino acids in exactly the right configuration. They came up with a probability of 1 in 10 to the 40,000th. I'm just reading this book by Spitzer, I think it was last night. And he was talking about what is the total mass of the universe. So all of the, the mass, all of the, the physical bodies in the universe, how much do they weigh? How much does it weigh? And the answer was 10 to the 53rd power, kilos the 53rd the whole mass of the universe is 10 to the 53rd kilos well they came up with this probability of 1 in 10 to the 40,000 1 in 10 with 40,000 zeros after it all around the walls of this room and then go around at another level there's not that many atoms in the universe so what did they conclude atheists as they were that life could not possibly have put itself together by chance. There had to be a designer. And Hoyle is credited with the famous statement that the odds against the spontaneous formation of life, by chance, were similar to the odds of a tornado blowing through a junkyard producing a 747. So it is like that. Or it's the camera being formed, or the watch in your backyard in, in, the, in the cyclone. It doesn't happen. So, what did they conclude? Okay, it had to have a designer, but they don't believe in God. So, what do they believe in? Again, we come back to a super intellect in outer space, who created life there and sent it to Earth. We could say, Sir Fred and Chandra, we wholeheartedly agree, and your simple, your super intellect is God. Oh no, oh no. No, it's just a super intellect. 
wait a second, that super intellect, that almighty super intellect that created life is what we call God. More recently, philosopher Anthony Flew, F-L-E-U, gave as a reason for his conversion to belief in God after 50 years of atheism in which he wrote very serious works defending atheism, the philosopher, after 50 years of that, he gave as a reason for his conversion to belief in God that the study of DNA has shown, quote, by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that an intelligence must have been involved. That shook his atheism. He became a believer and he wrote that famous book called, well, if you look at the, the cover of it, it says, first of all, there is no God. And then no is crossed out and A is written above. There is a God. Well, it's a reasonably short book, but uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant um, biography of his intellectual conversion to belief in God. Now, a final question, which Lennox didn't deal with, but I think is equally relevant to the whole question of God and science, is where do human beings come from? Now, I'm not speaking about evolution of apes into people that walk on two feet bipeds to homo sapiens um, well I am really but what makes man distinct intelligence, rational intelligence a spiritual soul where did that come from because our good friends in the zoo the rangas, <coughs> orangutans the word has been applied to other creatures than orangutans recently, which have red hair, um, orangutans and gorillas and chimpanzees do not have rational intelligence. They might be intelligent, they have a brain, but they don't have rational intelligence. How do we know that? One of the signs, this is one of the many you could, you could give, is human beings, because we have rational intelligence, we can think, we can ponder things, we can say, I can make a wheel. I can make a better mousetrap. I can make an airplane. I can fly to the moon. I can make a better house. I can harness the power of the sun to heat my house with solar energy. Constant progress. There is no progress in the animal world. In the highest animals, there is no progress. They are not thinking. They are not rational. They do not have a spiritual soul. They have a soul which is, a soul, which is the, the principle of life which all living things have. They have a brain but there's nothing spiritual there. Where did the spirit come from in human beings? It does not come from matter. We've had billions of years of evolution and that didn't give rise to spirit. God is the spirit who gives the spiritual soul to human beings and he continues to do that with every new baby that is conceived. God infuses the soul. And so, the very existence of rational intelligence, the very existence of human beings who can discuss this question, and frankly, this is my own firm belief, and I think it's good philosophy, the very ability of Richard Dawkins and Frederick Hoyle and Anthony Flew in his atheistic days to deny the existence of God 
proves the existence of God. The ability to deny it implies that they have a rational soul, an intelligence, a spirit, capable of knowing what God is and denying that He exists. But that spirit can only come from another spirit who is God. So the whole question of man in his rational uh, spiritual soul also argues for the existence of God. Well, what do we conclude from all of this? That science does not bury God. Science studies the very laws and complexities of nature which could only come from God because they can't come from chance. Chance produces chaos. There is order. There is purpose in nature. Scientists with a humble mind like Einstein he uses the word humble like flu ready to convert and write a book about it not bury himself and, and disappear from the philosophical world but write a book they're convinced of what they found that the very order in nature bespeaks a God and the more intelligent and humble and unbiased scientists are the more they come back to belief in God so we as believers didn't need all of this and, but it's interesting to see the state of the question at the present moment and frankly it takes more faith to believe that there is no God than to believe that there is one so I happen to believe in God mind you I was biased before I started this whole study but uh, it only confirmed to me more and more there, there is a God so we'll finish there thank you have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father John Kleiner. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.